This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. How do you describe the story and its themes? I would describe it as a story about the ripple effects of hatred, the struggle for political power, and what I call historical amnesia. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. John Blake is a senior writer and producer with CNN, and he's also the author of a book called Children of the Movement. In the book, Blake collected the intimate, moving stories of families who were pulled apart by the horrors of the civil rights movement. And it features the stories from some of the era's most recognizable figures. In that book, Blake reports on the story of James Earl Cheney, a black civil rights worker who was murdered in Mississippi in the 1960s alongside two white civil rights workers. Cheney's death was horrible, but the story didn't end with his death. The ripple effects of his murder are felt throughout his family as one tragedy leads to another. The life of an average black person in Mississippi, and particularly in the rural areas, was a life of really constant terror. If that person tried to vote, if that person owned too much property, had too much wealth, they could be thrown off their land. They could literally be killed. It was an apartheid state where white people had all the political and economic power. And the black people in Mississippi lived not that much differently than the blacks in the 19th century Mississippi who had just been freed from slavery. How did this compare with other states, both southern and northern states, and the condition of black people who live there? Mississippi had a reputation of being one of the most brutal segregationist states in the Jim Crow era. And there are different reasons for it. Nina Simone wrote a song about Mississippi, Mississippi Goddamn. It was a particularly brutal state for black people because it's something that people don't normally talk about. And that is, there were a large number of blacks in Mississippi. For a long time, I think going back to the 19th century, there were times when black people in Mississippi outnumbered whites. So a lot of whites felt from the very beginning in Mississippi, when black people in the 19th century first got their citizenship rights, they were very aware early on that if they ever allowed democracy to exist in Mississippi, that they could be voted out of power. So they were particularly brutal in Mississippi because they knew the numbers weren't on their side. And they reveled in the type of savagery that they were known for. 
they wanted that reputation to terrorize black people so they wouldn't take advantage of the numbers so things wouldn't change. Also, Mississippi gave this country some of the most racist segregationist politicians. I'll give you an example of how bad Mississippi was. My father was a merchant marine. This is a man who had been in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. This is a man who loved being in danger. And I never saw him afraid of any time. But when I mentioned the word Mississippi to him, I could hear the shiver in his voice. He said he wouldn't dare go to Mississippi. So when you said the word Mississippi back in, say, 1964, it inspired this feeling of dread, not just in Black people in Mississippi, but all over the country. Could the federal government not do anything or did they not want to do anything in this time period? What kind of power did they have over states? They could do something, but they didn't have the will. Back then, the Democratic Party was full of what they called Dixiecrats. These were Southern senators who were Democrats, but they were incredibly racist. And one of the failures of the Democratic Party, particularly in the early 20th century, is that a lot of uh, presidents like FDR didn't want to alienate the Southern Democrats and their party by coming down too much on the side of Black people. So they had a hands-off policy, a lot of politicians, on trying to deal with the brutality in Mississippi because they didn't want to split the Democratic Party. And you also got to factor into the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court going back to the late 19th century, had destroyed a lot of possibility for racial progress with a series of decisions that pretty much said the federal government is going to stay out of elections in states. We're going to let states run their own elections. We're going to turn a blind eye to the lynchings and the killing. So the courts also created this environment where people, white people in Mississippi could get away literally with murder. Tell me what voter intimidation was like. I'm assuming that's an understatement for Black people who are hoping to vote in state elections in Mississippi in the 60s. Well, it was a combination of physical and economic terror. If they printed in the local newspaper that you had tried to vote and say you were a sharecropper who worked for a white landowner. You were a poor person like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a very well-known black activist in Mississippi. And you had maybe nine or eight children depending on you. And you lived on this white landowner's property. They could throw you off the property. They could fire you from your job. You had no means to support yourself or your family. That was one way they intimidated people. But then other times, it was just raw brutality. If you were a Black person, you dared to go down a courthouse to try to register to vote. They could beat you senseless. They could come back later to your house, kidnap you and kill you. Your body could disappear. This sounds like an inevitable death sentence for any civil rights activists in this state who are Black in the 60s. Is that right? If you were a civil rights activist, particularly a Black civil rights activist in Mississippi, I would compare it literally to being a soldier in combat, whereas a soldier, you know, would go into battle not knowing if he would come back alive. There were so many civil rights activists who had the same attitude. I don't know if I'm going to survive what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to survive this month. I give you an example of how awful the conditions were. When those three civil rights workers disappeared and the FBI commenced this search throughout the state, they were dragging all these rivers in Mississippi to look for them. Before they found the bodies of the three civil rights workers, they found the bodies of like eight other black men who had been brutalized. So Mississippi was literally a graveyard for civil rights workers. Set the scene for what happens. This is 1967, summertime. Introduce me to James Earl Cheney and Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner. So James Earl Cheney is a young Black man, 21 years old at the time, and he grew up in Mississippi. So he had no illusions 
about what he was facing when he became a voter rights activist. He was the type of guy that had an incredible amount of courage. He wore a badge for the NAACP in high school and was suspended. Back then, that's like wearing Black Lives Matter to, I don't know, to a KKK parade or something. So he was very brave. Unlike some Black people in Mississippi, he was not intimidated into silence. And he wanted to be part of this political revolution that was coming through the state. So when groups like SNCC, Suit Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, CORE, all these other groups came, he joined them. He wanted to be part of it, despite the fears and warnings from his family of what could happen. Then you had Andrew Goodman, a young Jewish man from New York. And he was part of this other great tradition in the civil rights movement where Jewish people really identify with the story of, of Black people. And like a Jewish man was the guy who wrote the song Strange Fruit about lynching. So he came from that, that Jewish tradition of activism and it grew out of Judaism and the emphasis on justice. And he was a young idealistic man, family of good means, who came down to Mississippi, one of hundreds of other white students who wanted to come down and play their part. And then you had Mickey Schwerner, who was kind of a chubby guy with a goatee. And Ben Cheney told me that if you close your eyes and you listen to Mickey speak, you would swear you were hearing a, a black guy. He was one of those guys who had already been in Mississippi for a year. He was a veteran. He knew. And he seemed to be one of these white people who had a way of really making black people feel comfortable. He, he felt like family to people. He really had a gift for not coming in with this kind of attitude, like, I'm going to teach you things. But he came in with an attitude of humility. And he had nicknames for people. He called James Earl Cheney. Bear, and he called Ben Cheney Cub. He was just a, a jovial guy that a lot of people liked, and also just incredibly brave just to be there. What brought Andrew and Mickey and James Earl together that particular day? They were one of many students there. One of the big goals was to register voters, Black voters. They wanted a political power. One of the focal points for Black political power in Mississippi and elsewhere is the Black church. It was one of the few institutions where Black people could go where they felt some degree of freedom from white people. So they would have a lot of political meetings at churches. There were a lot of civil rights meetings, community drives for voting. And there were some Black churches that were burned. And those three came together because they wanted to investigate these church burnings. And so they were stopped for speeding by some Mississippi sheriffs. That was the ostensible purpose, we're stopping you for speeding. But that's how they fell into the hands of these white law enforcement officers in Mississippi that summer. Mississippi, and it's just hotter than hell in the summer. So I'm assuming this is a hot night. Hot, humid night. And when you're driving on one of those lonely Mississippi roads at night, it feels like you're going back in time. So they are going to go out. And what's the plan? They're going to go to visit this church to see what happened? Well, yeah, investigate, see what happened. They probably knew what happened, who was responsible for. But this is just an assumption on my part. But I think one of the main purposes of people like them during that time was to visit people when things like that happened, like a, a burning, was to bolster their spirits, to keep up people's morale, to make sure that the native Mississippians wouldn't give up. They weren't just detectives. I think they were also trying to keep up the morale of people that they were trying to serve. So they start to drive. And now is it evening time? Yeah, it's evening. And they were ambushed by a group of up to 19 men. Now, a lot of people get their sense for what happened from the movie Mississippi Burning. But that's an incredibly inaccurate and insulting movie on many levels. Hmm. Because the movie opens up with them driving, all three of them driving along on this, this dark Mississippi road at night, which is true. It's dark, it's lonely, these little narrow roads ringed by these huge trees. 
and out in these woods are probably you know, bodies of other black men. That part is true. But in the movie, James Earl Chaney is sitting in the back and a white person is driving the car. That doesn't even make sense. James Earl Chaney was the one who knew those roles better than anybody. His brother Ben told me that he had driven on those roles so much and he had been chased by the KKK and all those people so much that it was like he knew it like the back of his hand. He had defied death before he got on the road that night. They're taking a huge risk by going out there, though. Why go at night? Why not wait? Well, they were arrested. They didn't have control over when and where they would go. Okay, they're stopped by the sheriff and they're arrested under what pretense? Why are they arrested? Speeding. You could be arrested for speeding in Mississippi in 1964. If you're black, you can be arrested for virtually anything in Mississippi. Like, for example, there used to be a crime called reckless eyeballing. You could literally be arrested if you looked at a white person the wrong way. In fact, if you're a black man, if you looked at a white woman the wrong way, you could be killed. I mean, that's how we had Emmett Till. He supposedly flirted with a white woman. He was tortured and and killed. That's the state of terror they lived in. And that's what made James Earl Chaney such an incredible man. He knew all this. They had tried to take his life before, and he had evaded that. He was still going back out there taking those risks. He was stopped by the sheriff before? Well, he he wasn't stopped so much. What his brother Ben told me is that they couldn't get him because he was such a great driver. Hmm. He would drive with his lights off through these roads at night that he knew like the back of his hand and they couldn't get him. But this night they had a, a mob really waiting for them and he couldn't get away. He had two other people with him. Initially, they're going down these dark roads. They're stopped by the sheriff, James and Andrew and Mickey. They're arrested for speeding. They are taken to the county jail. And then they were let out. But they were let out, not for freedom. They were let out so they could be led to their death, really. And that's what happened. How many law enforcement officers are we saying from the very beginning colluded? It's two that you name, right? But there's probably more. Yeah, there were 19 men that were originally arrested, but there were two sheriffs in particular that became really well-known, Cecil Price and Lawrence Rainey. And those are the two people that I know about for sure. There might have been more in that 19, but those are the two I, I know about. And those are the two that most people know about. So what happens? These three guys get back into their car. They're irritated, I'm sure. And then they drive off. Their car was stopped and they were ambushed. From the accounts and and talking to Ben, James Earl Chaney was the first one who was, was murdered. And he wasn't just murdered. He was tortured beforehand. He was whipped with iron chains. He was beaten so savagely that his bones were literally crushed. Ben told me that when he looked at the autopsy photos for his brother, that it looked like he had been in a plane crash. And they did other things to him that were pretty brutal to desecrate the body. So they did this in front of Andrew and Mickey, who were still alive at first. So imagine this. You're seeing this man, your friend, being tortured and killed in front of you. And you know you're next. And then the account comes that Mickey, as he bent over to look at James Earl Chaney's body, was shot through the heart. And then Andrew Goodman, he was shot as he tried to run away. And there are indications that even when those three men were shot, they were buried in a, in a grave, that there are reports that maybe even Andrew might have still been alive. But they were, they were tortured, and it was a mob of men. And those kind of details really stayed with Ben Cheney. How does the Cheney family find out any of this? It was a huge public event. It was a huge political event. It was a huge national story. Because there was so much focus already on Mississippi because all those white volunteers had come down to Mississippi. You see, part of the strategy of the civil rights movement in those times, young black activists realized 
If black people are the only ones dying in Mississippi like James Earl Cheney, no one will pay attention. So part of the reason they wanted white volunteers to come down is that they figured that if white volunteers were there, if they were facing danger, if they were getting beaten, that the nation would care more about them. So when those white volunteers went down there in the summer, the country was following this. And so when they disappeared, most people immediately knew that they were dead. They pretty much knew. And so the only question was not, where are they? You know, are they alive? But the question is, can we find their bodies? And so that's how the family found out. It was just all in the news. It was, it was a huge national story. I still remember those posters of those three men. When, you see, when I see that poster today, I feel this shudder because it was so widely distributed. And when people saw those posters, most people knew they were looking at dead men. They find the bodies. How long does it take for them to find the bodies? I think it took about 44 days for them to find the bodies. And before they found the bodies... 44 days. Yeah. White politicians were saying it was a hoax. You know, it didn't really happen. They were denying it. People knew that these, these guys had lost their lives. So they find the bodies. They're degraded, I'm assuming, summer in Mississippi, but they could still figure out what happened. Horrible, horrible development for the Cheney family and particularly for his 12-year-old brother, right, Ben? When you ask what happens, there are kind of two levels to the answer. On a political level, what happened is it built up pressure so that President Johnson at the time was able to use some of the outrage over what happened in Mississippi to push for the successful passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So that was taking some good out of the tragedy. But on a personal level, for the family of James Earl Cheney, for the families of Mickey Schwerner and Goodman, the story about what happened really is what didn't happen. Nothing happened. They could not successfully arrest and convict and charge anybody for the murders of those three men, even though everybody knew who did it. They had a trial in 1967. You're talking about like small southern towns. When people like that were murdered, the typical thing was people knew who did it. And that was, see, that was part of why they did it. They wanted people to know. They wanted people to know because that's how they kept people terrorized. And that's how they kept their power. And they wanted people to know because they believed that no Southern jury would convict them. And they weren't as worried about people knowing. And they were right. No Southern white jury would convict any of those men. The 19 men were arrested. No Southern jury would convict any of those men in the murders of these three men. They had a trial a little later, I think it was 1967, and they convicted some on civil rights charges. No one did more than like six years or so. But no one, even to this day, was successfully convicted for the murder of those three civil rights workers. And there was another man named Edgar Ray Killen. He was arrested in 2005, about 41 years later. He was the ringleader. He was successfully charged in those deaths, but it was manslaughter. And he spent the rest of his days in prison and died in prison. But even he, it was manslaughter, not murder. That family put him in prison. So... That's one of the things I was trying to convey with my book. When people hear today about the Mississippi killings, the murders, I think a lot of people assume because there was so much publicity, because it's so well-known who did it, you know, just was, was found, that they convicted somebody in those murders. They didn't. They never did. That was the type of knowledge that Ben Cheney and the rest of his family had to live with the rest of their life, where everybody knew who killed them, but nothing was ever really done about it. And you carry that around the rest of your life. Not only that, I remember talking to James Earl Cheney's daughter, Angela. She would go to a shopping center and she would see a security guard, a white security guard who was swagging around at the shopping center. And every time she saw him, she felt this knot of bitterness and anger when she saw him. You know why she felt it? Because that man was one of the sheriffs who killed her father. 
and she's seeing him walk around free. That happened all the time in the South, not just with those three civil rights workers, but other civil rights workers who were killed, other people like Viola Laiuzzo, Reverend James Reeb. The killers weren't prosecuted. They just walked around in freedom and everybody knew who did it. Tell me about after James Earl's death with the Cheney family, because the terrorism doesn't end with his death. It wasn't enough to kill James Earl Cheney. They still harassed the family, death threats, assaults against uh, just damaging the house, vandalism. They hounded the family. I mean, even after they killed him. And so Ben Cheney, who was 12 at the time when his brother was killed, he didn't feel safe living there in Mississippi anymore. So he was forced to flee to New York City. His family sent him there. And that's where he spent pretty much the rest of his teenage years in New York City because he couldn't live in Mississippi anymore. It wasn't safe. I'll tell you how bad it is. It wasn't just right after the murders in 64 that white people in Mississippi harassed the Cheney family. When I went to Mississippi in the early 90s and I met Ben Cheney, we went on this really cold winter day, snow everywhere. We went to the cemetery to pay respects to his brother. And when we got there, Ben looked at the, the, uh, the gravestone for his brother and it had been shot full of holes. So people even recently were trying, they were vandalizing his brother's grave. He told me that people had even tried to get into the ground to unearth the coffin to desecrate his brother's body. Just imagine that type of hate. That hate, this is not 1965 when this was happening or 64. This is very recent. So that's how deep the hatred is. Isn't that also fear? Yes. Right? Because of the power that James Earl Cheney's name and his memory had, this was a tremendous amount of anger and fear that he had so much weight. He had influence. His death had so much influence. Well, yeah, I I think it's a good point that when you have that type of hatred, there's fear involved. I think it was more than just fear of the power of James Earl Cheney's death and the symbolism of this young man in his carriage. A lot of it's just fear of losing political dominance. Economic dominance. Things changing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I keep on thinking, people think when they look back at those murders of those three civil rights workers, and they think people just murdered them because they hated them. Simple as that. I don't think people understand that there is a political strategy behind these murders. There was a political strategy behind lynching. These things have a purpose, and that is to make sure Black people don't have any kind of political power or have any kind of economic power that would threaten white dominance. It's not just hatred. There's a strategy behind it. So this story could have ended here. Your story could have ended with the death of James Earl Cheney and Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner. This would have been another tragedy that there was some kind of good with, you know, LBJ's 1964 Civil Rights Act. But that's not where it ends with this family. It continues to sort of haunt them. Right in so many different ways. So pick back up with maybe the funeral, that iconic photo of Ben Cheney just breaking down during the funeral service. Ben, he really didn't comprehend that his brother had been killed until he went to that funeral that day. That's when it really hit him because his big brother had so often successfully evaded all those white folks that were trying to do him harm in Mississippi. And he looked up to him. He was his big brother. He thought he was like invulnerable. This guy was so smart. He was so resourceful. And when he goes to the funeral that day, it really hits him when he sees that coffin going in the ground that I've lost my big brother. It wasn't just like sadness and grief that he felt. It was also a tremendous anger because he knew 
that there were white people who did this in Mississippi, he began to develop this hatred toward white people. I'm talking with author John Blake about how he reported on the murders of three civil rights workers in Mississippi in 1964. Blake spoke with several members of James Earl Cheney's family, including his daughter and his younger brother, Ben. At this point in the story, Ben is growing increasingly angry over James's death, and it's about to lead him to a very bad decision. He knew that there were white people who did this in Mississippi. He began to develop this hatred toward white people. And that would not be the environment that he came from in the Cheney family, right? This is sparked from what happened to his brother. No, no. One of the ways that Black families survived psychologically, not just physically, but psychologically, growing up in the Jim Crow era in the South, when you're surrounded by that much kind of terror and you have so many people hating you and you're humiliated and all these things happen to you constantly. A lot of Black Southerners took their refuge in faith, in their religion. I mean, that gave them tremendous, like, spiritual resources to deal with that. And one of the things you heard King and all those people talk about is that you can't allow a man to drag you so low that you will hate him. Cheney's family, as like many other Black families, they did not preach this type of hatred. They, like many, they were. it's about faith. It was about you can't let this stuff consume you. The type of hatred that Ben Cheney felt wasn't something he learned from his family. It was something he absorbed from watching what white people did to his brother. He's sent to New York because he can no longer be in Mississippi and doesn't want to be there, I'm assuming. So he goes to New York, which is more progressive than Mississippi, I'm assuming. New York had then and now its own problems with segregation that people don't talk about, but it was definitely not Mississippi. And it wasn't just New York. He spent most of his time in Harlem. To be black in Harlem in the 60s was one of the best places to be, particularly for somebody who comes from Mississippi, a black man who grew up seeing black people tiptoe around white people, afraid all the time. You go to New York, the scene of the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s, you have this huge black arts movement. You have all this black nationalism. This is the place where Malcolm X would be on the corner talking about white people and black people cheering him on. He told me it was such a, a new world for him and it fired him up. And it made him feel proud to be black. Psychologically, this this helped him feel better about himself and his people to be in New York. So he goes to school in New York. Is he successful there? No. So he's not destined for a conventional career. What is his path once he's there? He spent most of his time in Harlem. He was he felt like he could create more change outside the classroom. There were all these kind of black liberation groups, black nationalist groups that were seizing the imagination of young men like him. You know, the Black Panthers were really popular. All these other Black militant groups. And so he felt more swept up by that as opposed to the nonviolent Dr. King stuff that he was exposed to in Mississippi. So he was like one of many young Black men who was caught up in that kind of Black nationalist movements of the late 1960s. So is it late teens or early 20s when things really start to go awry for Ben? April 1970. Ben was only like 17 or 18 at the time. One of his friends asked him to join him on a trip to visit a relative in Florida. On the way there, this man told Ben the trip's true purpose was to pick up these shipment of guns and transport them to this Black Liberation Army unit. So he's on on this trip. And what happens next is at the end of this trip, four white people were shot to death and two wounded during a murder spree that crossed Florida, North Carolina, and South Carolina. 
And so at the age of 18, Ben was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of a white insurance salesman and two college students. He was acquitted in the murder of a fourth. So at 18, his life is over pretty much. Did he do it? Does he say he participated actively? He says he didn't do it. He says, I never killed anyone. He says, I was charged and convicted primarily because I would not tell after the acts were committed. And he says, I didn't know the acts were going to be committed ahead of time. And I did not go and tell the cops that this person had killed someone. But he spent the prime of his life the next 13 years in prison. What was his experience in prison like as a Black man now in the early 70s? Did he talk to you about that? He took a journey that a lot of Black men then and now take in prison. And that journey is, I think, most associated with Malcolm X. That is, he used that time to create a new version of himself. Reflect. To read, to educate himself. He read all these books about Malcolm X. He read George Orwell's Animal Farm. He read the biographies of great people. He told me that prison taught him patience because in prison you have to wait all the time. So I think in prison he matured and he reinvented himself. So in the world of activism, we've gone from the pacifism of his brother, playing within the rules, but not white people's rules, but not breaking the law, right? Mm -hmm. Then over to the other extreme of aggressive activism. Now in prison, what is he doing? What does he think? Does he feel like he can still, despite this conviction, do something to change of what's happening in the world around him, either in or out of prison? When he got out of prison and I talked to him, years after that, his idealism had faded a bit. He said that a lot of Black people weren't really prepared to pay the price for the type of revolution that was needed. But his idealism may have faded in some ways, but he never abandoned that because his new mission became going back to Mississippi to try to win justice for his brother. So he became this activist who was going back to Mississippi, agitating and trying to persuade people and authorities to arrest and convict the men who killed his brother. So he realizes, obviously, a lot of what has happened in his life is connected to this one incredible tragedy. And that tragedy is connected nationally at this point. So now he's really drilling back to who he is and his roots. He goes back to Mississippi to finally get justice for his brother. How does it go? He tries to find justice, but in a sense, one could, I think, argue that he never really found it because nobody was ever convicted in the murder of his brother. The most they got was a manslaughter charge for the the ringleader, and they put him in prison when he was 80 years old, and that's where he died. But you had 19 men arrested. Some of those men that were arrested, they didn't do more than six years. So one could argue that his quest to really win justice for his brother was never realized. But at the same time, I think what he did do, you could argue that this was something he did successfully. He let the country know. He let a lot of people know that you think that story ended back in 64 when my brother and those two men were murdered and some men were arrested. I'm trying to tell you, it didn't end. Justice wasn't found. So I think it it, it showed a lot of people that what happened to his brother was part of a larger pattern, that it happened to a lot of civil rights activists who were murdered in the 60s. Justice was never found. Did he contribute at all to the arrest of this man who was 80 at the time? No. There was a reporter in Mississippi, Jerry Mitchell, a white reporter, who really did a great job of reminding people about the murders in Mississippi, but also just about all these other people that were killed during the 60s and justice wasn't found for them. So it was this reporter. And they also had, they had a great evidence from the trials. You got to credit people in the Justice Department said, we got to try to do this again. People who didn't let this case go. So it was a, it's a lot of different groups. But Ben did his part by keeping that case alive in the news media. He could have just 
retired to his private life, but he didn't do it. He used his name, even some of the tragedy from his past, to try to make something good out of it. And you said, who had a daughter? Did James Earl have a daughter? That was one of the most powerful parts of the story to me. A lot of people don't know this, but James Earl Cheney had a daughter that was born about a week after he was murdered. Gosh. And so she grew up in Mississippi. And like I mentioned earlier, she grew up going to a shopping center and seeing one of the men who was responsible for her father's death. She would see this man and just feel this just, just tremendous tension and bitterness. And I asked her, did you ever feel tempted to go up to him and say something like, you know, you murdered my father, how could you? And she said, no. She said, because if I hated him, I would become just like him. And hate is what took my father out of the world, so I don't want to go down that route. She told me she grew up in Mississippi. She didn't let people know who she was because she was afraid. So his daughter was afraid. And she told me that she would go to class and she would hear people talk about their, their murders, and they would talk about her father. She would see that picture from the wanted poster of her father, but she wouldn't tell her classmates that that's my father. So the Cheney family continues to live in Mississippi, is that right? For last I know, Angela does. The daughter. Last I know, she's married to a police officer. She had four children. James Earl Cheney's mother died recently, not too long ago. She lived long. But I don't know if the other extended family, if they're still in Mississippi. How do you think this story affected you? I'm assuming it resonated. We've already sort of touched on that. Yeah. You spoke about your father. Mm -hmm. You traveled to Mississippi. What was your feeling reporting on this? Well, it had a profound effect on me because it kind of forced me to redefine patriotism and carriage. What I mean by this is specifically, um, today, if you you know, get off of a plane and you see a man in a uniform or a woman in a uniform stand up, people will applaud and say thank you for their service. And you look at TV and you see all these movies about great war heroes, like Saving Private Ryan. And we talk about those soldiers that stormed the beaches in Normandy. And we say they're great Americans and look how courageous they were. When I began to learn more about people like James Earl Cheney, it occurred to me in many ways, that they were just as courageous because they knew that what they were doing, that they could easily lose their life. They didn't have flags. They didn't have guns. They didn't even have a country backing them up. A lot of the country was opposed to what they were doing. A lot of the country thought they were communists to troublemakers. But they believed so deeply in these ideas about democracy, about the importance of the vote, that they were really, literally willing to die for it. And I had never really thought of courage in that form. I always thought of courage as being attached to someone carrying a gun. But I never thought of courage when you have someone like James Earl Cheney, a black young man in Mississippi, where these people didn't even see him as human beings. And a lot of the country didn't believe in what he was doing, but he did it nonetheless because he believed in the country. So... That gave me a new appreciation for the kind of patriotism that they had. I don't think we talk enough about them as being just great patriots. But secondly, what it, it showed me is that for us, a lot of these stories are passages in history books. But for them and their family, it's like it happened yesterday. They're, they're still dealing with it. I was talking to Taylor Branch, who's a famous civil rights author, and he said that the families of people like James Earl Cheney and Andrew Goodman they are like families of combat soldiers that in some ways they're like, they're dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome. All these things that happened to people like James Earl Cheney, there were people that James Earl Cheney who survived, who went on to live their life. But a lot of the things that happened to them, the way they were arrested, the way they were tortured, the way they were beaten, they suffered post-traumatic stress syndrome throughout the rest of their life. They still had to deal with 
all the things that they went through. Some of them broke psychologically. It's not like there's a retirement plan for these civil rights workers or we throw parades for them or we applaud them and say thank you for their service, but they're still dealing with their after effects. So that's another thing that story really showed me is that this stuff that happened in the past is still happening to people that are alive today. What is the more common retribution, though, for people who are alive today? Who are the James Earl Cheneys of your generation, of our generation? Well, fortunately, we're not in a place where it's common where a Black person trying to register to vote is going to be murdered. But we're now going through what many consider, and I do consider, the most sustained attack against voting rights since the Jim Crow era. If James Earl Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner stepped out in today's world and looked at what's happening in Congress with voting rights, one of the tragic things would be is that it would seem so familiar to them. A lot of the same, you know, voter suppression strategies, all these kind of different things people try to do to make sure Black people didn't have political power, they're doing it now. So as far as retribution asks your question, when people try to combat that, they're not getting killed. But there's a kind of almost like a civic equivalent of murder where they're not being allowed to vote or it's becoming more difficult. Was this one of the tougher stories for you to report on? Well, yeah. I think the thing that got me is that the depth of hatred, the way they murdered James Earl Cheney, the way they desecrated his body. When I began to realize that there wasn't just hatred, that there was a political strategy behind it, that it was about power. And those things really stayed with me. And when I see, for example, today, when I saw that insurrection at the Capitol and I saw a noose hanging out of the Capitol building and I saw a white demonstrator carrying a Confederate flag through the Capitol rotunda, when I saw the look of anger, murder on those faces who were so angry about this election, it just showed me how this type of hatred is so durable is so adaptable and is still here. What is the story of James Earl Cheney? It shows how far a part of America is willing to go to deprive Black people of voting rights. When we talk about voting rights today, it tends to be kind of abstract and kind of legal. We talk about voter ID laws. We talk about this. I don't think most Americans know that there is a long history of people murdering and torturing Black people who were trying to vote, that I don't think people really get that. So I think this story kind of shows the length people were willing to go to make sure that they could maintain political dominance. But the second theme to the story to me that that stands out is when I alluded to earlier when I talked about historical amnesia. When I did this story, and I would, I would go around and talk about it in my book, so many people didn't know this history. So many people didn't know that no killer was ever successfully convicted in the murder of these men. So many people didn't know about the brutality of that era. The fight is not just over what happened then, but the fight is over the present and how we're going to look at this country. And I just think there are all these huge forces that want people to forget this, that just wanted to go away they don't want people to learn about this. I, I, I keep on thinking about, you know, Angela, James Earl Cheney's daughter. What if she spoke up in class and said, that was my father? What if she told people, this is what my family went through, and this is what he was like? She could have helped. But would, a comfortable, but would a teacher be comfortable with her speaking up in class now? Would a teacher feel comfortable even talking about that? And how complex that case is when people are putting so much pressure on people not to talk about 
systemic racism or critical race theory, even though they can't define it. So I just think it's really important to keep on telling these stories about James Earl Cheney and how complex that, that story was and how it wasn't this neat story of good and evil, bad guys sent to jail. That is a lot more complex than that. On the next episode of Wicked Words. The Hatfields came over the state line and basically hunted down Harmon McCoy and and killed him. Some historians say that didn't begin the feud. Not much happened until Randall McCoy's hog went missing and he found it in a Hatfield hog pen. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wicked Words is featured in Stitcher's True Crime Week. So check it out now. 